Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Kellen, we're going to take the opportunity on today's episode to do something that we don't do very often on the podcast, which is to talk about something happening in current events. Now, while that's going to be part of the episode, much of the episode will be giving a broader context to those current events, why they're happening, what it means in the context of collapse. But if you read the title of this episode, which you likely did, then you know that we're going to be talking about railroad strikes. We have done multiple episodes on the supply chain already. The first was sort of a broad overview of the importance of supply chains and why they're vulnerable. The second one that we did was on semiconductors. It was a more detailed look into one specific part of the supply chain. And today's episode is meant to be, again, another deeper dive into this section of the supply chain, which is oft overlooked, I think, and maybe poorly understood. And our hope is to be able to sort of broaden the understanding of what's happened with the railroad over time and hopefully giving context to where we're at today. Yeah, and I wish I had a way to adequately express this evolution that has taken place within my own understanding of collapse as I've been doing this research, some of these deeper dives. Because when you first introduced me to collapse, Corey, and you started explaining it, I started understanding it. It made sense that like we have a really complicated system and that there are a lot of vulnerabilities. But when we go deeper on something like this, it is just so eye-opening. Like here's another factor after all these other factors that we talked about. And this one really is so important. It's such a critical part of how we operate as a society. And yet it's something that I never think about. Like I've never put serious thought into. 
Then I start doing the research and I'm like, wow, here's just one more thing. Yeah, and I'll be honest as well that when there was news of these potential strikes back in September and then again this month, I had a pretty poor understanding of what it meant, how the unions work, the consequences. You know, there was this general understanding of, yes, this would be bad, but I understand why they are doing it and, and all these different things. But it, it has been fascinating to do the research, to look into it a little bit further. And so hopefully we can enlighten some others today who might have been in that same boat that we were. But maybe to start, let's cover some of the bases around the importance of rail to the U.S. infrastructure and supply chains. Yeah, and maybe the best way to highlight that is just to share that roughly 28% of the total U.S. freight movement by ton miles, which is basically multiplying shipment weight in tons by the number of miles that it's transported, was shipped by rail. And that's according to the U.S. Department of Transportation. And I had no idea. Like of, of all the freight that is moved in the U.S., 28%, right, between a quarter and a third to think that that much is delivered by rail was really surprising to me. You could have told me it was like 8%, 9%, and I would have thought that was more accurate. Yeah, I saw a stat that said that 75% of new cars are moved by rail. So you can imagine the impact on an industry as large as automotive sales. Three quarters of all of that movement happens on our, on our rails. Yeah, and it turns out it's just much more efficient especially for any sort of a heavy load that's going a long distance. A lot of the information that I was looking at regarding how much stuff is moved by rail in the U.S. comes from the Association of American Railroads. Some of it was from Union Pacific, but according to the AAR, or the Association of American Railroads, in 2019, U.S. Class 1 railroads shipped, and I'll just read a few of these, 4 million carloads of coal. And, and each rail car carries enough coal to power 21 homes for an entire year. 2.2 million carloads of chemicals, we're talking plastics, synthetic fibers, drugs, soaps. 2 million carloads of construction-related materials. We've got lumber, steel, stone, sand, gravel. 1.8 million carloads of motor vehicles and parts, which is what you mentioned. 1.6 million carloads of food products, 1.6 million carloads of grain and other farm products, 13.7 million units of intermodal shipments. That's like electronics, home goods, clothing. But when we talk about those millions, those millions of rail car loads, one way to put that in perspective, according to the AAR, is that just one rail car can transport enough wheat for 258,000 loaves of bread and enough soybeans for 415,000 pounds of tofu. It says one car can carry enough barley for 94,000 gallons of beer. That equates to over 1 million bottles. Right, so each of those, we're talking about just one rail car. And so the sheer volume of it, to me, is mind-boggling. And I'll share just a couple of things. I know, I know I'm reading a lot here, but when it comes to just how important it is that we are delivering things by rail... So much of it has to do with the efficiency. So freight railroads account for roughly 40% of U.S. long-distance freight volume, more than any other mode of transportation. However, they account for just 0.5% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, according to the EPA. And when you just look at all transportation-related greenhouse gas emissions, railroads are only accounting for 1.9% of that. 
So a tiny, tiny fraction, even though so much of what's being moved back and forth is done by rail. You know, in regards to your comment on greenhouse gases, I saw one interesting stat that said that if 10% of the freight currently shipped by the largest trucks were moved by rail instead, greenhouse gas emissions would fall by more than 17 million tons. You can imagine not just the impact of greenhouse gas emissions, but also of just less traffic, less trucks on the road, which would be less wear on our highways, which would be less safety issues for other drivers. I mean, this is not an episode on how the rail system should be, but it is amazing to think that if we prioritized more our railway systems, we could be a much more efficient and much more environmentally friendly economy. Yeah, a single freight train can replace several hundred trucks. And and what's crazy about that, just emphasizing what you mentioned, is that railroads can move one ton of freight nearly 500 miles per gallon of fuel on average. So it's by far the most fuel efficient way to move freight over land. Here's another way to look at it. I found this one interesting. If railroads did not move freight in the United States, it would take over 99 million additional trucks traveling on public roadways and would take four times more fuel than rail to handle the freight Americans rely on every day. Yikes. Just that number of trucks and then considering the number of people to drive those trucks. That is wild. All right. So we've just heard about this immense volume of goods moved thanks to rail. It's pretty apparent to see how important it is to the U.S. economy. Obviously, our supply chains would be absolutely crippled without our railway. And we've seen over the last couple of years issues with the rail system that we'll talk about here a little bit later in the podcast and how much of a headache it's been for supply chains not having the railways running super efficiently. So with that being said, I think it is important to discuss, in addition to the strikes that we're going to be talking about, what are all of the different reasons or threats, I guess, to our rail system? Yeah, if this is our system that's moving 28% of all freight. And when we're talking about long distance freight, it's moving 40%. Like, you're right, it would be crippling to have any sort of major disruptions. The thing is, those disruptions do happen. Sometimes it has to do with labor shortages. I mean, it takes a lot of people working in the railroad, the rail industry to keep things moving. And so just like how we haven't been able to get enough essential workers in so many other parts of our society lately, there are struggles to have just enough staff and enough hands to help. Sometimes it's a matter of just supply, demand, inventory, capacity. There can be major disruptions when the railroads become a bottleneck. One of the major ones is weather events. And there are all sorts of natural disasters and extreme weather events that can cause these disruptions. One that you might think of most commonly is like winter storms. It's one thing to just have snow that maybe these big snow drifts can cover the tracks, but also moisture can freeze in the air brake hoses. And you think about these steel rails, you know, those can be affected by really low temperatures. And obviously, winter storms, winter temperatures aren't the only things. I took some time to go through an analysis. It's back from 2007, but the title of it is Analysis of Weather Events on U.S. Railroads. And there were a lot of fascinating like charts where they're able to slice and dice the data in different ways. You can see 
weather-related accidents and the way that they spike at different times of the year. So like in July, when you get extremely high temperatures, there's a spike. And then December and January, when you get a lot of snow and ice, there are more railroad accidents. There are things like snow depth or even water depth, uh, you know, floods, tide height, subsurface temperatures, subsurface moisture, obstructions like rocks or mud or landslides. You know, there's a whole list of these hazards and they're able to look at how that affects these different types of disruptions. When it comes to accidents and incidents, there's derailment, which has the highest number, collisions, obstructions. Another category they have is fire slash violent eruptions. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. And and these aren't anything new. The railroad industry is well aware of these threats and they're continually working to try to mitigate them. But there's nothing you can do to just prevent severe weather. And in fact, as we know, severe weather incidents are becoming more frequent and more severe. And sometimes we think like, okay, snow has covered the tracks, but they've got ways to clear the tracks ahead of the trains. But maybe the roads themselves are covered in snow and the workers can't get there to be able to help, right? So anytime there's disruptions, even if they don't affect the trains and the rails themselves, weather can play a huge part. So the last thing I'll mention, this is probably the most common, is strikes. And I think we'll dive a little bit deeper into why these strikes happen. I was looking for examples of strikes that were really disruptive. And I started to see some major ones in the U.S., the Great Railroad Strike of 1922, or the American Railway Union's Pullman Strike of 1894. And the further I got into it, the more I saw long lists of examples. This is such a common issue, and not just in the U.S., there's the 1926 Sierra Leone Railway Strike, the 1928 South Indian Railway Strike, the 1948 Queensland Railway Strike, the 1995 Strike in France, the 2006 South Korean Railroad Strike, the 2007 German National Railroad Strike, the 2019 Railway Strike in Sri Lanka, the 2022 Strikes and Disputes in the UK, which are continuing to, you know, through the holidays today. Right. And I'm just picking kind of at random here, but I got a big long list of all these railroad strikes that have taken place here in the U.S., but also internationally. And I chose a few to dive a little bit deeper into. And it seems like there's often this similar story where either there are wage cuts or there simply aren't raises in wages. You know, in the U.S., approximately 84 percent of class one rail employees are unionized. And we're talking about more than a dozen different labor unions. The unions get involved. These strikes take place. The railroad companies fight against it. Uh, sometimes they hire these strike breakers to kind of replace people and, and keep things running. There are cases in some of these examples that I read through where it escalates and merchants refuse to sell groceries to the strike breakers and they create boycotts and then it erupts into violence and people have been killed. And oftentimes governments try to get involved, but U.S. freight railroads are privately owned. And so they, they're independent businesses. They're responsible for setting competitive rates, which they call tariffs, and maintaining the railways. And they contract out with these different logistics and, and transportation carriers. It's a big, messy situation. 
and the frequency throughout history that these strikes have happened is is alarming. Like I, I can't figure out why it's so hard for us to just solve the problem. Capitalism seems to be the problem. You know, you think about railroad barons and sort of this idea of of these railroad companies over time, and you know, the the ones who ran the rail in the past ran the country. And maybe it's not so much to that extent today, but so much of the issue, and this is what we'll talk about here in just a minute, is just around money and where that money is going versus where it should be going. So I'm going to go through a little bit of the history behind a couple different acts that have changed the way that strikes are handled in the U.S. And before you dive into that, I just want to jump in and, you know, you said, well, capitalism is the problem. I think the issue is more just greed and people being treated unfairly because sometimes in countries that aren't so capitalist like the United States, we're still seeing these strikes and these major disruptions. And capitalism with all its flaws can work really well or really poorly just like any other system. But like we've talked about in the past where it seems to have problems is the way people are incentivized and the fact that, you know, greed takes over and we've got huge profits going into the pockets of only a few while the masses are treated poorly. And it's hard because to me, those two are conflated. I mean, the whole philosophy of capitalism is greed. The free market is the idea that what the individual is incentivized to do is to gain for themselves, right? So it's like one can try and be charitable within capitalism, but capitalism itself incentivizes greed, which in turn causes these these issues. But like you said, this is still happening in countries where capitalism might not be, you know, whether a more socialist country and and obviously like free market capitalism, the U.S., no country in the world is actually pure capitalism because there's so much that happens with, yeah, like government intervention, lobbying, regulation, collusion, all these different things that prevent it from being an actual free market. So the I think the conversation there is probably a bit muddled, but we can agree that greed is is the primary issue here in that there is enough money to make everyone happy, but that money is typically going to a few, leaving the bulk of the so-called essential workers overworked and underserved. So, you know, you mentioned some of these strikes in the past, and some of those strikes were very large and very destructive meaning that for the workers, they were also very effective. But because of this, in 1927, the Railway Labor Act was created, which allowed Congress to act to avoid any disruption to railways. So you had mentioned, well, railways are private companies. They're the ones who set all the terms and all this. But because of the 1927 Act, it's allowed Congress to step in and say, we're actually putting our foot down on some of this stuff. It actually gave them the authority to settle disputes for things like pay and working conditions. Yeah, and that to me is a little bit interesting and confusing at times because with some of these recent strikes, it seems like government officials try to step in and help encourage each side to come to an agreement, but there's still kind of a middleman in a negotiation. They're not the ones actually saying, here's exactly what has to be done and what everyone has to agree upon. Yeah, so the first attempt is through mediation. They try and, and create mediation groups that say, let's let's work between the union and the railroad companies. Let's come to an agreement. We don't need to get the government involved. But that doesn't always work. So when that doesn't work, that's when the government steps in. And in September, that's what we saw. We saw Biden come and say, 
look, we have kind of put these proposals together. This is what we think you should do. The, the government basically played mediator in that role. They weren't enforcing anything. They weren't imposing it. They were, they were helping to try and broker the deal, right? And we'll get more into the details here in just a second on what happened in September and what's happening now. But I do want to note that Congress has stepped in, not just the government, but Congress themselves have stepped in 18 times since 1927. But it hasn't happened since the 1990s. So it's been nearly 30 years since Congress has stepped in on, on railroad strikes at all. Okay, so, so why is this happening now? Why are they striking? What's, what's the conditions like that's causing this? Well, to talk about that, we're going to go to another act. This was the Staggers Rail Act of 1980. So in 1980, there were 33 Class 1 railroad companies. However, the Staggers Rail Act basically deregulated the railroad market. So it was basically the government saying, we're going to step out. We're going to allow this to be more, you know, free market, let it happen as it may. And at first it was lauded as a great choice. Rates dropped for freight, conditions overall improved, efficiency gains were made, but it did not take long, just a few years. And due to collusion and consolidation, now there are just seven. So we went from 33 companies down to seven companies. And those seven companies control more than 80% of all rail freight in the entire U.S. So here again, we're getting into this tricky conversation of free market, right? The government has their foot in, their foot's coming out, their foot's stepping back in again. So how much of what's really happening is pure capitalism and how much of it is this confused sort of mix? So now there are regional monopolies, there are duopolies in the rail freight. And what's happened is actually really interesting. Worker counts have been slashed. You know, you mentioned earlier that it's hard to, to always make sure you have enough workers, but employment has actually been cut by a third. So there are currently around 115,000 rail workers. That was, that was cut down to that number by a third just in recent years. Freight traffic has been decreasing since 2006, but prices have risen, even inflation adjusted by 30% from 2004 to today. Performance has been decreasing. Lead time has been increasing. The rail systems are becoming more unreliable. And there's a few interesting numbers, I think, to note to show that. So between 2011 and 2021, $138 billion was spent on capital expenditures to the rail system. So that would be things like upkeep, maintenance, additions, any capital investment while $191 billion went to shareholders as dividends and stock buybacks. So, I mean, that is a huge portion, more than 50% of expenses went to shareholders, and that lower amount went towards upkeep on the system. Yeah, when you shared that first number, what was it, $138 billion? Yeah. When you said that has been put back into the railway system over the last decade, I thought, wow, that's awesome there doing this good thing, you know, investing all this money back. But then when you share that second number, like, wow, they are only doing that as an investment, right? And and you wouldn't expect anything different. But the fact that they, in that same time period, paid out $191 billion, it's pretty astounding. Yeah, in 2021 alone, a record $20 billion in profit was made by the railway industry as profit. But they spent $18 billion on stock buybacks. So again, money going back to the shareholders. So you can, you can see why 
rail workers are frustrated seeing that that money could be going towards bettering their conditions, seeing as how they're the ones keeping it afloat, and instead it's going to the shareholders. So that brings us to a little bit about what's going on today. What are the conditions that they're living in? So there's a relatively new system for running rail, which is called precision scheduled railroading. And basically what it means is that they claim that it's making up for worker cuts. They're saying that we can deal with less people because we're being more efficient, basically. They can say we're making gains on our profits because even with you know less capacity and less freight being moved, we're working more efficiently. But what it actually does is it compromises resiliency in the system, it compromises safety, and it compromises employee well-being. Basically, they've just made the system extremely lean, which has increased the burden on the existing employees. So you've got these rail workers who are working extremely long hours, whose pay has not increased recently, who doesn't have bonuses, and they don't have paid sick leave. They also have harsh penalties for calling out sick or utilizing FMLA or some of the other you know, vacation days. They're, they're treated very harshly in these things. And so these recent strikes have been them coming to the table and saying, we deserve more. We're being overworked. We want more pay. Some bonuses would be nice. And most of all, we want sick leave because right now they are not able to call in day of or day before and say, look, I just came down with the flu. I'm feeling awful. I can't come into work tomorrow. There's severe penalties for them doing that. And so workers are saying that they're being forced to come in and work when they're ill. The railroad companies are saying, no, we're giving you that opportunity. You have all these vacation days. You can just use your vacation days when you're sick. The problem is what the railroad companies aren't saying is that those vacation days have to be taken multiple days in advance. They have to be advised multiple days in advance that they're going to take vacation days so that they can schedule around them. They are not allowed to say, hey, I'm using my vacation days today because I'm sick. It's not allowed. Because of this precision scheduled railroading, workers have to be often on call. They have to be willing to come in, you know, with no more than a 15 or 20 minute notice. And so they have to they have to sort of always be available. So like we were just mentioning, Biden then comes in and says, let's try and broker a deal. They come up with a couple of options. They both include that there's going to be 24% raises over five years. They will add $1,000 annual bonuses. And then one of the suggested or proposed deals would be that they would get one paid sick day per year. And the other was that they would get seven paid sick days per year. The railroad companies basically refused to do either of those. They fought so hard to not have to do even one paid sick day. It's not so much about paying the employee while they're out. It's more about the fact that because they're running a lean system and they don't want to invest in having a more resilient and robust employee scheduling ability, right? They want to run as lean as possible. So they're saying it is crucial to us that those workers are available to us at the drop of a hat, right? And that they're not calling in sick ever. And in the end, the seven-day option is rejected and the one-day option is the one put forward. So this deal pushed by Congress, again, pushed by Congress, but not yet imposed, it's supposed to look like this great deal for workers. And many of them are happy with the pay raises, right? And so there's a vote of those 12 unions, eight of them accept the offer, four of them reject it. And many people in the unions, or even the unions themselves, of those who did accept it, said that they were willing to strike in solidarity 
with the four who rejected it if they decided to push the paid sick leave issue. And so that's what's happened this month of November and December is these these unions have come out and said, we require paid sick leave. We are going to strike in order to bring the companies to the table and pressure them to allow us some sick days. Now, this is where it gets interesting because if there had been a strike, it would have forced the companies to come to the table and talk and make something happen. We're talking about $2 billion a day that would be lost if these companies were unable to operate because of a strike. But that's the free market, right? Like when we talk about capitalism, if we want a free market, then that means that workers who are not getting paid what they feel they are worth can step away from a job and say, we're not going to do it until we are given what we feel it's worth. And so what happens then again here is Congress steps in and they say, actually, we're invoking that 1927 law and we are imposing this on you. Congress voted to impose the deal on those unions and say, you have to take the deal that's already been proposed. You cannot strike. So the, the companies, the railroad companies basically got to use the government as a loophole to get out of paying for paid sick days. And some of the, the union workers are saying those record profits that you earned and those buybacks that you did, only 2% of what you paid out in buybacks would cover us annually for these paid sick days that we're asking for. It would reduce your shareholder profitability by 2% in order to give us ex you know, exactly what we want. And of course, the government is willing to step in because they don't want that shock to the economy. They know what that $2 billion a day in lost freight would do to the rest of the economy. So it spooks them, right? And it's a win-win situation for the companies. It's a win-win situation for the government. But who's left screwed here? It's the rail workers. And many of them are still angry, even though to the rest of the public, it might look like, oh, crisis averted. Rail workers got their deal. Companies are happy government's happy, we're all happy. But really, this does not solve the issue. There is a lot of anger from rail workers now. They're feeling that they've been hard done by. And not only does that anger still exist, but the consequences of having 115,000 rail workers who cannot call out sick, who are continuing to go to work when they are sick in a time of a pandemic and increasing health issues overall, to me, that spells a recipe for disaster in the future. One thing that's interesting to me, I know we're talking here about this particular case and what they were asking for is sick leave, but I've seen so much information that's cherry picked to kind of use as ammo on one side or the other. One example of that is when it comes to salaries. Oftentimes it's wages in the way that railroad workers are compensated that comes up in these strikes. And, you know, on one hand, I'm reading that the average railroad worker salary in the United States is $49,306 as of November 23rd, 2022. But if I look on the website for the Association of American Railroads, they're citing very different numbers in an interesting way. Like they call out that in 2020, non-unionized U.S. Class 1 freight rail employees earned an average annual compensation of $135,700, including wages and benefits. And they talk about how the average compensation of rail workers ranks within the top 10% of all industries. They mention a 24% wage increase by 2024. They talk about how in 2020, 
more than 500,000 beneficiaries of the railroad retirement system received retirement and survivor benefits totaling $13.5 billion from the system. And it's just interesting that I can, you know, look at one source and it sounds like, man, railroad workers are being treated amazing. And then I go look at another spot and see that maybe that's not the case. There are those who love unions and what the unions are doing. There are those that hate unions. You know, I've seen that some people claim no matter what you give them, they're always going to do these strikes. They're always going to ask for more because they know they can leverage just their, their collective quantity with these unions. But when you just look rationally at what's taking place and what's being described by the workers themselves, it definitely seems like they're not asking for anything unreasonable. And really, they are getting you know, the short end of the stick. Yeah, I saw some stat that said I, it was something like 82% of the U.S. workforce has access to paid sick leave. And yet these, you know, 115,000 essential workers keeping the nation moving are not granted that so that the railroad companies can pay out $20 billion a year, $18 billion a year in stock buybacks. And it begs the question about what's next? You know, when's, when does the next strike come up again? This deal that was brokered is supposed to last through 2024, so another couple of years. But how do these unions respond? How do the individuals respond? Do people start leaving the industry to find other industries where they're, you know, they feel they're treated better? If this really is such a crucial part of our system, and right now where unemployment numbers are so low, it's still a worker's market. Workers can, you know, they have the opportunity to find employment for the most part where they're treated fairly. And so it, it is nerve wracking to see this weakness in the system. And it will be interesting to see in the years to come, do the owners of these companies see the plight that they're in? Do they understand the importance of some of these basic benefits for employees and grant them? Or do they keep pushing the line as far as they can to maintain control and push their employees over the edge. And as you've done such a good job, Corey, of highlighting this specific example of the railroad strikes that are taking place here in the U.S. right now, there are these major strikes taking place in the U.K. And some of it has to do with job cuts. Some of it has to do with a demand for increases in wages. And as I look at everything that's taking place in Europe right now, with all of the supply chain issues, you know, between Everything that's happened with the pandemic, the economy, the war in Ukraine, people are in a really tough spot. And there's been this rising cost of living. And the rail workers are demanding that their wages reflect that. And to me, it just highlights like this is exactly what catabolic collapse looks like. That everyone's getting hit hard. And you've highlighted in the past that it's not so much about one political party against another. It's more about the rich against the poor. And you can only imagine as resources become more scarce and as, you know, with natural disasters and keeping up with infrastructure, resources are being put in all these places where somebody is getting left out. And I think we'll see not only in this industry that we're talking about, but also in other industries, more and more people getting upset, demanding change, trying to take steps to protest. And how much will those protests escalate? We'll see exactly how all that plays out. But here, when we talk about one factor in the broader concept of collapse, really it's one symptom of a much larger underlying issue. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.